0: Next, met with Dr. Guillermo Garcia Monero to discuss Ash datasets in AML, MDS, and CML, and to begin, Dr. Garcia Monero discussed the fascinating field of acute promyelocytic leukemia.
1: Right now, I think that the APL field is a little bit not complicated, but maybe has two different camps. For years, we had both the Italian and now the Spanish experience adding an anthracycline in this, you know, people refer to this as AIDA-like protocol. So in the community, people have been using idorubicin with all transretinoic acid as a standard type of induction and consolidation chemotherapy for APL. And there's a question whether RSC or not may help here and so forth. In parallel, there's been data that emerged probably in parallel both in China and at attendee Anderson looking at incorporating arsenic trioxide, both upfront and in patients with relapse acute promylocytic leukemia. And in parallel with all this, there were a couple of studies, one from India and one from Iran, that had been presented already a couple of times looking at single agent arsenic trioxide in patients with APL. Now, in those two countries, in Iran and in India, the main thrust for this is actually economical. You know, I don't know if people are aware of this, but all transretinoic acid is a very expensive drug to provide. And I actually didn't have an idea about how expensive it is until three or four years ago. I was running this trial with 5 in valproic acid, and Atra. And I was trying to get whoever makes the Atra to give us some free drug, and I couldn't get that to work. So I thought, well, just buy it. And then I learned how expensive actually is to do this at the standard dose for a prolonged period of time. So this has economical implications. The bottom line is that what they've done here in India is to look at the experience with single-agent arsenic trioxide. And now they updated this data. I think originally they reported on 72 patients of newly diagnosed APL. And basically here, they're doing an update of these results. And I think that really this data, first of all, is very impressive because I mean I hate to talk about first world and second world and so forth, but the reality is that obviously this is not a tertiary care center doing research in the United States. So this is a hospital in India, and they've done a really remarkable job focusing on a clinical problem that is relevant and then doing what looks like a beautiful phase 2 clinical trial of arsenic trioxide in APL. And then what they found, basically, is that the response in terms of hematological remission is close to 90%, and they've also showed a little bit the dynamics of relapse that it appears that it happens in the first couple of years that is actually very similar to what we have seen before they also showed that in a few patients that they lose the response, autologous stem cell transplantation is of benefit that is being reported by other groups. And then in terms of what really matters, that is the overall survival of the group, you know, they're showing numbers of between 70 to 80% long term that I think are very spectacular. And what they mentioned in this presentation is that this was a fraction, I think it was a fourth of the cost of what an antracycline atra induction will cost in their country, and not only that, you know, it can be done outpatient. Now, in the U.S., this is not something of major issue. Well, although it may change in the near future. But I think what this shows is, number one, arsenic trioxide clearly now is the most active agent in acute promylocytic leukemia. This data, single agent in frontline APL, is really good. It's significantly less toxic than induction with an anthracycline. And it also reinforces the data from the MD Anderson. You know, we had these two studies doing both Upfront and Relapse, Arsenic, Atra, and then adding Mylotark to patients with high-risk disease. And this data now is maturing very nicely. And basically, I think that we're going to be in a situation close to what we see in CML with, you know, long-term survivals of more than 90% in most subsets of patients. So I think that this is very exciting. And it basically goes to demonstrate that arsenic trioxide single agent has significant activity. Now, to anticipate your question, will I do this in frontline APL? Yes, I recommend that all the time. You know, we love to see all these patients here at Emily Anderson. But of course, if someone is calling me, like in your case from Florida, this is not going to happen. Because I think this is one leukemia where you really want to intervene as soon as possible. This is not something that you want to wait like three or four days to see if you can, you know, start some type of therapy or transfer the patient to a faraway place. So I think this is now, in my opinion, the standard of care, combination of arsenic trioxide, all transretinoic acid, consider the myelotark, and basically what you come up with is uh, all non-chemotherapy program that is highly successful in these patients. I think that these data from different centers with the non-chemo programs indicate that probably the AIDA type of approach is going to be replaced by an arsenic-based approach. Of course, This disease is complicated because diagnosis sometimes is difficult. You need to have a kind of sophisticated molecular and cytogenetic alteration. So my call to the community physicians is that if you're doubting that the patient is an APL because it has DIC or if you have expertise and looked at the peripheral smear and it looks like you have a lot of promalocytes or if the meloperoxidase is very positive, these are all characteristics of this disease that you can pick up quickly. I think that you need to intervene as soon as possible. If there's a center in your community with expertise, you're going to see a patient like this per year in a busy clinic, if so. So I think that most of these people, they need to be referred to a place where they can do molecular testing, cytogenetics testing as soon as possible and initiate some form of therapy. And under down, there is no problem starting some ATRA on these patients. And then consider that you can cure these people with this type of arsenic combinations. I think that's the message here.
0: How about the paper from the French group looking at azacitidine and
1: AML, abstract
0: 843?
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of this on this meeting, and you know, I think that the results with 5 azacitidine in high-risk MDS were very exciting. Of course, this has now led to approval of 5 azacitidine in high-risk MDS in Europe, not only in the U.S., and the important thing from that original paper by Pierre Fenot is that Five cytadine had a significant effect on survival on this patient. So this is not something that we come across every day in leukemia. You know, some of the endpoints are responses or hematological improvements and so forth. Here, you know, what they showed was a very clear significant improvement in overall survival, which is very interesting. Now, when they did that analysis, they call MDS by FAB criteria that, as you recall, it will pick up up to 30% blast in the bone marrow. And nowadays, by WHO criteria, those patients from 20 to 30% blast are called AML. Now, in practice, this is meaningless because you can still call them NDS and you know use the drug. It's not that you cannot use the drug. Actually, the drug was approved on this FAB type of criteria, at least in the US. But the bottom line is that there was this fraction of patients that we will now consider acute myelogenous leukemia, and the original data from that paper by Pierre Fenot indicated, and I think that this data is now impressed or is going to be published in the JCO, that indeed, actually, older individuals with AML, they do well with this intervention compared to low-dose RSC and maybe induction chemotherapy, although in reality, in that paper, very few of those older patients were treated with high-dose chemo. So now there's a lot of interest on trying to see what the activity of these hypomethylating agents, both with 5-phase and the cytabine, is or are in patients with AML. So this is basically a retrospective analysis of the French compassionate use. So basically, the drug gets approved in the U.S., uh, randomized studies mandated by the European EMEA, the European FDA, if you will. And while this happens, European countries have compassionate use access to, in this case, 5 And this is what they call the French ATU program. And they've done a very good job because not only they've provided this drug to patients that could benefit from it, also they kept a very nice database. And you're going to see a lot of papers from this group looking at different issues in both MDS and AML. So here they reported on uh, 140 or 138 patients with AML. Most of these individuals, of course, were older, median age 73, although there were some young individuals. I think the range was between 30 to 87 years of age. And what they found basically is that with a median follow-up of around 10 to 11 months, the median cycles of therapy was between four to five, some people getting up to 26 cycles of therapy. They gave the drug following the FDA EMEA schedule that is the seven days weekly, but also some patients had five days for four week or just a few uh, little bit lower dose. I guess that's part of the compassionate use. So that part needs to be clarified a little bit. But basically what they report is that there was a response in 29 patients. So there were 21% of the patients that had benefit from the therapy, including 14 complete remissions, 2% CRPs, meaning the plates had not recovered, another 5% or so partial responses. And then what is interesting is that there was another 25 patients that had improvement in peripheral counts or hematological improvements without truly having any bone marrow benefit. Now, the one-year overall survival that's the key, was 40%. And I think at two years was uh, around 20% or so. So this data is very interesting and it goes again to show what we know from the high-risk plastic studies is that what these drugs do is that without really achieving a complete remission in a very high fraction of patients, because we're talking here a complete remission rate of, what, 15% or so, you have an overall survival at one year of 40%. That is significantly better than, you know, for sure the natural history of this disease and the experience that we had with other compounds with a relatively good toxicity profile. Now, of course there is retrospective bias here, who gets the therapy, who doesn't get the therapy, etc. And I think that as you're aware, there are two studies now looking at this issue in AML. One is a randomized study with the citabine comparing the citabine versus low dose RAC. I think that their accrual has been reached or is going to be reached very closely. That's going to be a very important study for the cytabine. And there's another study with 5-esacytadine that is ready to be launched or is just starting, where patients are gonna be randomized again, 5-esacytadine versus some type of conventional care. And I think those are gonna be very important for all their AML and may establish one of these two or both hypomethylating agents also as a standard of care, not only in upfront high-risk myelodysplastic syndrome, but in AML. And looking back, Uh, the data, for instance, with 5-phase acitidine, I don't have any doubt that this is actually what's going to happen. So for the community, this one is tricky because this drug is available and is not really approved by the FDA for patients with more than 30% blast. But the reality is that it is my impression that this is now common practice. And I think that what this study shows is that we're doing the right thing because even though the response rate is not very high, The toxicity is very low. The induction mortality is very low. And these patients, at least from this French analysis, look like they are deriving some survival benefit. Now, it needs to be proven in randomized studies and so forth. But between not treating or giving low-dose RAC and giving one of these interventions, for sure I will favor one of these hypomethylating agents. Now, I think what is critical is to maintain proper dosing, not starting to skip cycles or... Once these patients respond, those are the patients that I get really excited in terms of maintaining a proper time between different cycles and the dose. What I see many times is that some of these patients have had very good responses, let's say, for a year, and then all of a sudden, and this is very interesting. I never, you know, it's something that when I get old, maybe I study where it's not so much the patient saying, oh, you know, I'm tired. I don't want to come to the clinic a week, every month. It's somehow the physicians, like... You know, we, I guess, achieved what we wanted, and then you start saying, well, I'm going to give it to you every five weeks or every six weeks, or I'm going to cut down the dose, or, you know, maybe we can do that every other month, or maybe we can stop and see what happens and then restart. Every time you start something like that, the patients relapse. And as I mentioned earlier, once these patients relapse, they are very difficult to rescue. So my advice is that if someone has a good benefit to one of these drugs, just keep going and be as intense as you can, because that's when you get these two or three-year median survivals that us and others have reported. But it requires chronic exposure to these drugs. And I don't think that they cure anybody. But they're a very good first step for these patients with high-risk MDS and potentially acute malogenous leukemia.
0: Where do you see this thing heading from a research perspective? And do you think it eventually could be incorporated into
1: a regimen that has some kind of a cure rate? Right. So I think the step that I mentioned earlier is that these two randomized studies hopefully will put one of these two drugs or both in the map for AML. And then there will be an FDA indication, potentially also an EMEA indication. But as I mentioned, you know, you're getting here maybe a two-year benefit. That will be phenomenal. I mean, remember, these are older AMLs with bad chromosomes. <laughs> this is a dream that we didn't have. I mean, so it's not that these results are bad enough, but you asked me about cure. So I think that the next game is this combination study. So there's a lot of studies with the histone deacetylase inhibitors. Our study with valproic acid, the pilot was positive. The randomized study does not look like it's something that is going to change outcomes very much. There are a couple of studies out there. One is supposed to be pretty mature with a drug called Syndax 275 or MS275. I think it has another name. But the data is blinded and it's through the intergroup. And as far as I know it has not stopped as of yet, which suggests that, you know, there's some benefit, but we need to figure out the final results. And then there are now studies planned with Borinostat and another study with LBH589. So those are with HTAC inhibitors. Then people, like the study I discussed, you know, looking at combinations with lenalidomide, if that data with lenalidomide 30% at higher doses, and then you come with a combination of 5-sacitadine with a high-risk lenalidomide, maybe we can start seeing some increments in terms of the survival curves. I think that what we're going to see until we discover some type of imatinib in this disease, is some type of progressive improvement, maybe like what we saw with interferon in CML or with the fludarabine in CLL, where these curves are starting to go up a little by little. So maybe the second drug will add to the survival that we saw with the ASA001. But I think the key is to understand or identify some type of target. I think what happens with MDS is that it's so heterogeneous that it's really extremely complex, and we don't really understand how these drugs work, what are the targets that are being inhibited and so forth. And we're going a little bit blindly here, particularly in patients that relapse. We don't really understand why that happens, what is, for instance, the genetic or epigenetic situation of those patients, etc. So it's very difficult to come with kind of targeted interventions for these patients. So at the end, probably will be some type of drug, and I'm going to be a little bit cynical here, but someone will try a particular compound with a lot of expectation, and all of a sudden you'll have some response rate, and that will open some new field in terms of what happens to the biology of these diseases.
0: How about the poster by Lancet at all, looking at maintenance therapy with low-dose subcutaneous 5 a
1: This is a poster from Jeff Lancet at Moffitt and the group at Duke, and I think that this poster should be considered more as a pilot type of approach. And I think that it goes very nicely with the question that you asked me earlier, that is, how do I see these drugs in place? So we talked with the first abstract in terms of how to use this upfront in AML, older, et cetera. But of course, one possibility will be perhaps to introduce these compounds as post-remission type of therapies. I mean, one could think of debulking these patients with some type of intervention, you know, an rse based program, and then maintaining them. Now, For sure, this has been tried many times. In the past, with low-dose RAC, last year there were some papers with interleukins, etc., but nobody has ever shown that this type of post-remission type of approach works. So this study, presented by Dr. Lancet, only has treated around 16 patients, so it's very limited data. There's very little in terms of whether the drug is affecting or not the natural history of the disease. What they show, basically, is that the intervention is safe. There was a very important poster a couple of years ago by the Swedish group where they did kind of the same thing in a different fashion, but they gave induction chemotherapy, and then for those older patients that could not really tolerate consolation chemotherapy, they gave 5 cytadine and they had very nice results similar to what I just showed for the frontline French ATU study. So the question is whether this type of approach helps here or not. We have a study at MD Anderson with the citabine. It's early to know whether this is working or not. So far, the data from that study that Dr. Ravandi is doing here at MD Anderson doesn't look like it's very positive. So we have to wait for the maturity of some of these trials to figure out whether these are interventions that are worth pursuing or not. So I think that the take-home message is that this is something in the horizon, it's safe, but we don't really know whether they really have a role for all patients with AML or not. If they did, this would be a major intervention.
0: How about the paper looking at clofarabine in AML, paper number 2061,
1: Gabrilov at all. So clofarabine is a drug that our group has been interested and in, has developed for many years, and it was approved in pediatric ALL. It doesn't really have a lot of activity in adult ALL, interestingly, but probably where the drug is most active is in uh, acute myelogenous leukemia. The question is how, with who, what dose, et cetera. It also has, as we'll discuss a little bit later, activity in myelodysplastic syndrome. Unfortunately, as you know, this drug was turned down by the FDA not too long ago, and we were a little bit surprised by that decision because it's not that we have a lot of other interventions for that group of patients. not that I'm in a position to criticize the FDA, but, you know, we would have liked to have an alternative for those patients. So here, this is a multicenter study done at different institutions through the U.S., a phase two study of clofarabine, and the dose was daily for five days, the dose of 30 milligrams per meter square. And, you know, they dropped the dose to 20 for induction consolidation. And what they found in 112 patients that they treated is that the complete remission was basically observed in 42 patients. I think it's 42 or 42%. I'm not sure looking at the abstract. And the median duration of response was 65 weeks, so a little bit more than one year. And a median disease free survival of around 48 weeks, so close to one year, and a median overall survival of around 72 weeks. So basically what this shows is that this is an active compound in all their acute myelogenous leukemia. And the question is, you know, how to take this further. As I mentioned earlier, the drug was not approved by the FDA. Yeah. There is an intergroup or ECOC study randomizing in relapsed patients. So hopefully we'll have that data at some point in the near future. And that may give us an approval for clofarabine in this group of patients. I think that that decision by the FDA was difficult for this particular compound in frontline older AML. So the data now that is being explored has been in MDS. We'll discuss that with a paper with Dr. Fadel shortly after. And then I think also there are issues with the dose and schedule and potential combinations. So, for instance, there is data that combining this with lower doses of cytarabine may be a little better approach, and that needs to be pursued. And then in MDS, I think there are issues with the dose. Probably this dose of 30 milligrams per meter squared is a little bit too high for high-risk maladysplastic syndrome. But this drug actually may be one of the ones... That has some potential role in patients that had failed prior hypomethylating-based chemotherapy.
0: How About the paper that you presented, looking at oral azocytogene
1: in MDS and AML. Of course, this is the best one because it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> no, but I think this is actually first of all, it's a very nice story, and I think that the results are coming very interestingly. So. And also, you know, getting back to your
0: question about why docs
1: start stretching the cycle
0: out. I mean, what I hear from them, more I guess in MDS, is they say you know the patients get tired of coming in. Of course. And so, hopefully, I guess you know, if you had an oral approach, you wouldn't run
1: into that. So the story of this goes that these hypomethylating agents are nucleoside analogs, and in principle, they are catalyzed by uh, cytidine deaminase in the gut and the liver, and therefore they cannot be enteral type of drugs. So a few years ago, I was talking with who was then, I guess, the CEO of Farmion. He dropped this issue of this oral 5-phasia compound that they were testing in dogs. So I immediately reacted, and I called the person who was working on this at Farmion in those days. And then she said, well, I'm not sure we're going to develop this compound because we're trying it in dogs, these beagles, and they're dying. It doesn't look very good. Okay. But then I asked, you know, what's going on with these dogs? What do they die from? Because if the drug is not absorbed, it's kind of weird. I mean, unless they die from intestinal destruction or something like this. So eventually they got some veterinarian post-mortem analysis of those animals. And what happened is that they had marrow hypoplasia. So my conclusion when I heard that is that the drug was being absorbed. So what we did then was what they call a phase zero trial, where we had patients with leukemia exposed to just one dose of the oral 5 cytadine formulation. And this is the fastest clinical trial I've ever done, the fastest paper I've ever published, because... We had planned, I don't remember, making this up like 20 dose levels because we never thought that we were going to get any levels there. And what happened actually is that the first patient already had some traces of the drug and then patient two, three, and four already had kind of a nice consistent PK levels, although at a very low fraction compared to the subcutaneous 5 phaser. Now with that, we launched this phase one trial. And what we do here is we give oral 5 the first month is subcutaneous, And then the second month, they start with the oral 5-phase. So the reason to do this is that now you have intrapatient comparator, basically. So you can do PKs first month, PKs the second month. So this is a very PK-intense trial. And the patients are really being fantastic here, collaborating and allowing us to do this. But the data that is coming out is very interesting. So I'm just going to summarize it that basically the drug is very safe in terms of toxicity profile. We reached an MTD, I think the dose was 600, and it was diarrhea, but probably it's not from the 5-acitadine. The formulation that we have right now contains quite a bit of mannitol, so the tablets that we were using had very, I guess, high concentration of this mannitol because the profile was that they took the tablets and, you know, a little bit later they had very aggressive diarrhea anyways. We called the proper dose around 400. And... The first striking thing is that if you look at the PK profile, it's significantly lower than what you see with the subcutaneous. But what is really interesting is that when you look at the patients that receive oral 5-acitadine up front, not having received any prior therapy, the response rate is basically really spectacular. So basically, in the patients that had not received any prior therapy, the response rate was around 56%. Now, most of these patients were from the MD Anderson, and our numbers tend to be higher, et cetera, et cetera, Now, this is a multi-center. There are two or three centers in both of these, including John Hopkins and Florida. But this data is spectacular. I have now someone close to 26, 27 months on oral 5 as cited in a complete remission, traveling all over the world. So the way the study now is going is we're going to span to 14 days, 21 days, 28 days. Based on the PK characteristics, it makes sense that maybe giving this twice a day or three times a day may transform this into something similar to subcutaneous 5 And now I think that this opens the horizon for lots of studies with this compound. You know, of course, oral will be significantly better all over the world. Although sometimes we hear in the US that doctors are not super fascinated by this. Everywhere, it's really phenomenal. And the potential combinations are... Incredible, not only for leukemias, but for solid tumors and combinations with other oral compounds. So if we can get this to work, I think this will be a major issue for patients with myelodysplastic syndrome and potentially other leukemia. So I'm very excited about this data.
0: Do you see the potential actually to have
1: improved efficacy compared to sub or intravenous? It's hard to say because the numbers are small, but this data looks very positive. And I think that I probably interrupted my turn of thought. That's actually what I was trying to say is that the numbers are very small, and probably if you treat another nine, there will be zero responses, and then it will normalize. But remember, with the regular subcutaneous 5-phase, response rate's around 10% or so, in terms of CRs and so forth. So this activity is up there, and it's very interesting because remember, the PK, the exposure is probably a third or lower than what you see with the regular. So the question is, are we using the proper dose of this subcutaneous 5-phase acitadine? And it may make us think back in terms of trying to do more PK studies of the regular 5-phase and different situations because maybe we don't really have the right dose. Maybe even lower doses are better. There is data in the transplant setting by Dr. De Lima. They were not updated at this year, but they were presented last year, where we gave a dose of 5-phase acitadine of 24 milligrams per meter square for a few days in patients post-transplant with very nice results. So it's possible that very, very tiny doses may help significantly these patients. And of course, the oral formulation, I think, is really critical here.
0: How about the paper by
1: Vidge et al., 842, looking at high-dose lenalidomide for AML? This is a very interesting one. And I had the opportunity to look at this data actually before it was presented. So as everybody, I guess, that is listening to this knows, lenalidomide is approved for patients with a lower-risk malodysplastic syndrome, if they have an alteration of chromosome 5. In that setting, this drug is remarkable in promoting erythropoiesis and making anemic patients basically transfusion-independent, and it's very exciting. Now, what we know from this drug is that at standard doses, it can be myelosuppressive, and because of that, basically the treatment algorithms for linalidomide call for interruption of this agent once the physician observes some myelosuppression and so forth. But the reality is that if you look at the original phase one studies, it was a little bit similar to the story with imatinib in CML, where you know, there was some dose escalation, but it was never really formally looked at in terms of what would be the highest dose and perhaps different uses of lenalidomide in patients with myelodysplastic syndrome or AML, where perhaps a higher intensity with myelosuppression will not be something that will not be desirable. So what Dr. B uh, from Washington University did in this trial was to explore a higher dose of lenalidomide, a dose of 50 milligrams orally daily. And the way he did this is by giving two months of, I guess we'd call this induction chemotherapy, and then he dropped the dose into some form of maintenance. And this was done in patients without the chromosome 5 alteration. So there was a little bit of a different strategy, trying to see if this more dose-intense lenalidomide will have a role there.
0: And what fraction of AML has the deletion?
1: It depends on the series that you look, but it's between 10 to 20%. It also depends on whether you look at this as an isolated alteration or in association with chromosome 7 and other alterations. But I would say that around 20% or so of the patients will have some alteration of chromosome 5. But this study was basically for patients without chromosome 5 that are not the ones that benefit in the lower risk myelodysplastic syndrome. And they treated 33 patients. They were all older individuals with a median age of around 71 years of age, with a range of 60 to 88. And he reported a response rate that was around 30% complete remission on the intent to treat. This is very exciting because this is single-agent oral intervention for patients without chromosome 5. And I think it's exciting for two reasons. One, it's giving us now, I think, impetus to develop studies using different doses and schedules of lenalidomide in patients with MDS. And it also may help us in deciding how to use this compound, perhaps escalating the dose and the intensity in other diseases. That may be a completely different way of using this compound as what we have now as a standard of caring maladysplastic syndrome. So now, you know, of course, you could think about combinations using higher doses, perhaps more intense type of approaches. And, of course, you will also have an impetus as well to perform post-remission type of studies with higher doses, short courses of therapy, because what they showed here is that when you give it for the 28 days of the month, there is no excess toxicity, except from what you will expect in this type of patient population. I think that most of the deaths or toxicities were probably associated with disease progression and not from toxicity of the higher dose alidomide. Of course, you know, this dose, I believe it was a little bit arbitrarily picked up. So one could even think about higher doses, perhaps shorter type of schedule. In retrospect, I think that Dr. Big and his group would have liked perhaps to do this, like perhaps higher doses for prolonged period of time instead of just coming down with the dose. Because I think what they found is that those patients that responded originally when they were exposed to the lower doses of the lenalidomide lost their response. So it appears that dose intensity may be very important with lenalidomide in non-Del5Q, AML, and potentially higher risk maladysplastic syndrome that will open the opportunities for the use of this compound in this situation remarkably.
0: I'm not sure I see anything here in terms of thromboprophylaxis or thrombosis.
1: No, this is not something that's a very important question. I think that if I recall from the poster, maybe there was one or two episodes of DVT, but this is not something that we see frequently in patients with MDS or AML, so it is not recommended that these patients receive this type of prophylaxis, let's say, with low-dose aspirin. That said, most patients with MDS and AML, as you know, also have some degree of thrombocytopenia, so it may be risky.
0: What do you see as both the clinical and research implications of this? And specifically, do you think this is a strategy that should be considered outside a
1: protocol setting right now? No. I think that it's not for prime time yet. I think that This is going to be the genesis or the pilot observation that is going to trigger a lot of different clinical trials with nalidomide. And I think that over the next few years, what you're going to see is a lot of different trials looking at this approach. For instance, in my group, we now, by serendipity, because actually we were not aware of these results until probably at some point this summer, we have a study where we're going to be combining 5 acitadine Sequential with higher doses of lenalidomide. So what we thought we wanted to do every last year was to do, for instance, five days of 5 ssi followed by, in the phase one portion of these five days of lenalidomide, trying to go up on the dose as much as we could and perhaps then expand to 10, 15, 20 days and so forth. But the idea here was to try to maximize the intensity of lenalidomide. And it may be that our intuition was correct if one looks at this data. So I'm sure that you're going to see a lot of studies looking at hypomethylating agents with higher doses of lenalidomide, potentially a combination with chemotherapy, and as I mentioned, perhaps using this compound as a post-remission strategy, but instead of doing it at lower doses for a prolonged period of time, maybe one could give boluses of lenalidomide at higher doses in patients in remission and so forth. So I think this data is not there yet for us to say, well, this is an alternative for patients, let's say, older with AML, particularly because I think that the data with the hypomethylating agents is significantly more robust, both with 5-phase and the cytabine. So if I was going to treat a patient without chemotherapy with older AML, probably would use any of these two other compounds instead of jumping to this directly.
0: What about the patient who progresses after a hypomethylating agent or maybe both of them?
1: Yeah, I think that that will be one of the studies that you will see pretty soon. And the question is, can you rescue some of these patients? Because patients that fail hypomethylating agents are a very different group of patients. We just got a paper accepted in cancer and we're submitting another one looking at the natural history of patients with higher risk myelodysplastic syndrome that progress or fail hypomethylating agent-based therapy. Their prognosis is very poor. So I'm not sure that this intervention is ready for that. Now... I know for sure that one of the proposals that is out there is actually to explore the higher doses of lenalidomide in this particular group of patients, you know, that fail hypomethylating agents. But there is very limited experience because this particular study that we're talking about focused mainly on patients that had not received prior therapy.
0: Let's talk a little
1: bit about CML starting out with
0: this paper 338 looking at satinib So
1: the two studies, this one and the one that you're going to ask me about a little bit later, these are two frontline studies of the second generation TKIs in patients with early chronic phase. So basically, the sequence of studies at MD Anderson was that we were heavily involved in the original studies, phase one, phase two, uh, chronic accelerated plastic phase. And then we did the higher dose of matinib studies, 800. And then we had a study randomizing to adding interferon and GM-CSF. Dr. Cortez has led most of the studies. And then when the second generation TKIs came out, they moved fast into looking at them in this frontline setting. So, the first one is this 338 paper looking at dasatinib. And what you see in the study basically is that you have a very high fast induction of saturated responses and molecular responses. So, in the table that I have here in the poster, what you see is that, for instance, if you look at six months on therapy, dasatinib, the saturated remission is 90 plus response compared to. 54% for the 400 milligrams and 85 for the 800. But these numbers basically equalize at some point with longer exposure. So they are more potent. Now, they also have a little more serious toxicity profile. You know, the satinib has an issue in terms of platelet function with bleeding and pleural effusions and so forth. So the question is, is it worth this type of extra toxicity for this benefit? So... It's very difficult, and I look at this as someone that maybe is a little bit nowadays outside from the CML arena, but I think that actually it gives even more weight to what I'm going to talk about, is that when you have an intervention like a standard imatinib with overall survival rate, as we'll see in a second, 90% plus, you know, how much do you invest in improving that? And of course, the name here is long-term follow-up, the expense of years and years and years of, we'll discuss a very interesting abstract shortly after this. So these are all very important questions, and you could be very positive and say, look, maybe 20 years from now we'll see that intensifying and getting this very high satogenetic response rate really is beneficial, or you may be more conservative and say, look, I don't want to be exposed to this risk. So does this replace frontlinimatinib, in my opinion? No, particularly because of the toxicity profile that you may see with this compound. And the question is, what type of surrogate marker you're gonna use in this situation? Because again, survival is gonna be a very hard one to do, as you know, the iris study still is you know out there and now starting to show some survival benefit. How about 509? It's a study done by Dr. Cortez also and Dr. Jabur looking at predictors of outcome in patients treated with second-generation TKI. So this question is. Can you figure out who may or may not respond? And what they did basically is to look at all the combined data at MD-Anderson with the different drugs. And what you see there basically is they developed a model that is based on three factors that are performance status and prior saturnitic response to to imatinib. So if you have a good performance and you had had a response to imatinib, these patients actually do pretty well with this type of interventions. If the performance worsens or If they were refractory to the original TKI, these numbers drop significantly. So this is Mm -hmm. a nice model. Now, the question is whether treatment with nilotinib or dasatinib came in the multivariate analysis. And my understanding is that dasatinib did not really come here. That may at some point delineate what will be the preferred TKI in this situation. But again, as you see here, there is a little bit of political correctness in a way, because at some point, these investigators are going to be in a position to compare one versus the other historically, although, of course, this is hard because those studies are not really designed to compare one versus the other. But they already have like 60 or so patients on each arm and multiple in the relapse setting and so forth. So we could start getting some idea of which one of these agents is up there. But, you know, you should be also aware that there's now also third generation TKIs that may complicate this even more.
0: What's your take indirectly comparing them right now, these two agents?
1: I think that tasatinib is very powerful by being a little more promiscuous in terms of its target. It's a very attractive compound, but the toxicity profile decreases a little bit my enthusiasm for its use in upfront disease. Now, in blastic phase, it's probably the best drug that we have right now that one could use. Combining it with chemotherapies, as we've done with hypercivat and so forth in lymphoid blast crisis. So that's, I think, where this drug has an advantage. But in the frontline trials, I think that one thing that is critical here is quality of life, compliance, toxicity. And I think that the toxicity profile, at least from my experience, is that proenilotinib has a better toxicity profile in these patients. And with the numbers that we just saw earlier, this makes it a very attractive frontline type of compound.
0: I'm going to ask you about the late-breaking abstract, looking at nilotinib. But before I do, what's your take in general about toxicity and quality of life, nilotinib versus
1: imatinib? I think they're very similar, actually. So I think that's the main advantage. Now, with the nilotinib, the main issue is the cardiac toxicity that we didn't have with imatinib. And of course, what delayed the development of nilotinib, as you may know, is that early on in the trial, there were a couple of patients, or one, I don't know how many, but there were some propositors, some patients that had some severe cardiac toxicity. So you have to keep that in mind. It requires some EKG monitoring. And this type of toxicity always makes you a little bit tense because you don't want to have people, you know, having a major problem. So that's why I'm still not 100% sure that any of these two compounds are perfectly ready yet to, you know, be prescribed in frontline CML.
0: And again, relevant to that is this late-breaking abstract number one, looking in a phase three setting, nilotinib versus imatinib.
1: Yeah, so this is very, very important. And I think that that may basically change what I just said, that if this type of data develops, then it probably will be replacing one versus the other. Again, I don't know what type of biomarker will this in regulatory agencies look, but basically what they did here was to look at two ways of giving dilinotinib, 300 twice a day or 400 versus a standard dose in matinib. So here they were cautious in not really putting the higher doses of hematinib. And the endpoint primary is very clear, is to have a molecular response defined as major. That is an endpoint that I think is being accepted as important. And then to look also at saturnitic response profile. Studies for patients with pH positive CML in chronic phase early on in the first six months, and they could not have received any other prior therapy except for hydroxyurea and I think a neurolite as well. And then Typical characteristics of these trials. And then the data that was presented on the slides is very interesting because what you find there is that if you look at, for instance, major molecular response over time on an intent-to-treat basis, it favors the nilotinib arm basically any way you look at it. And it's fast. So you see that three months, at six months, at nine months, and then at one year, that I think is when they wanted to look at this. These are highly significant numbers. So the rate of response doubles what you will see with the matinib at 400. They look also at SoCal score, although I don't think that this is so important anymore because I'm not sure that this type of score is something that we apply anymore to the therapies in patients with MDS. They look at the best response, looking at 4 to 5 log reduction. So these are very significant molecular improvements. And again, what you see is that the log reduction for nilotinib is superior to... This will be what we call complete molecular responses, basically. The, this type of response will give you a PCR of zero at the anderson and here what you see is that nilotinib is superior. Of course, the same thing happens in the complete cytogenetic response rates, although overall at a lower rate, but still very significant at one year. And then perhaps the most intriguing part, in my view, is this overall progression to accelerated and blastic phase. I think that's what we need to really look at here. As you know, in CML, most of these transformations occurred early on. This is not something that happens five or six years later. So that these individuals show this data is very exciting because it probably will implicate that the survival at some point of these patients will be better. In terms of toxicities and QT prolongation that I mentioned earlier, it looks that it was acceptable. So this study, when it matures, it may actually be a landmark paper in that it changes the frontline therapy for these patients. Not that I will jump into this right this second. This is a very large study, so they're like, 282 patients treated with the lower dose nilotinib, 281 with the higher dose nilotinib, and 283 in the imatinib. And 11 patients progress in the imatinib, 2 in the lower dose nilotinib, and 1 in the higher dose nilotinib. So again, these are very significant numbers, but... The number of patients that are exposed is really small. So
0: Still, I mean, you know, 4% versus maybe half a percent, if you want to average that out. I mean, it seems like not very much, but actually it's pretty significant.
1: No, no, it's very significant. So the number is very significant. The magnitude is relatively small. I will anticipate that at some point with long follow-up, this will show some type of survival benefit. This was a very important poster presented. But again, going back... I don't know that I will replace imatinib right this second for this intervention. And the question is, can you somehow adapt how you approach these patients? Because there's lots of data now in terms of who's going to have an optimal response with regular imatinib. And then if you don't get the type of response that predicts for excellent outcome with imatinib, then maybe then you can start thinking about some of the second generation TKIs as of now. So I'm not saying that I will just leave the imatinib and don't worry about this data. I think that we can cure most of these patients. The question is, do you start up front now? I don't think that we're ready for that. But we could monitor these patients aggressively enough that you could change your practice if in time you don't get the type of molecular response that predicts for good outcome with imatinib. And you can know that basically at 12 months of therapy.